Uh, we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah. And we'll spend probably the rest of the summer and maybe even into the fall looking at this book. And uh, so, if you're not sure where it is, that's all right. It's fine to open up the table of contents of your Bible and see where a book is and, and find it that way. Nehemiah is uh, one of the short books. If you're flipping through the Old Testament and you come to all the first and seconds, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, after that comes Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, right before uh, Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. So that kind of gives you a, a little bit of an idea of, of where to find this little book of Nehemiah. As we look at this, we're going to consider a lot of different things. Nehemiah was, was living in a time of, of some pretty big turmoil. He was called by God to do a pretty big thing. And, and he had a huge task ahead of him. And as we look at Nehemiah, we see a man who steps out as God calls him to. We see God who is faithful beyond anything that we can understand. And, and we see some of what it is to, to have a vision from God where, where God says, here's what I want you to do. And to wrestle with that and struggle with that and, and chase that vision that God has given you. To be opposed because of it, to, to come up against those who do not want to see that happen. And how do we deal with that? So as we spend uh, the next months in the book of Nehemiah, I want us to be challenged personally in, in the vision that God has for you, where he's calling you. I want us to be challenged as a church. What is God calling us to do as a body? Where, where are we looking around and seeing people lost and hurting and dying? Where is God calling us to move? So these are some of the things that we're going to see as we look at the book of Nehemiah. But to start today, as I like to do when we start a new book, I want to just get some background of what's going on. <clears throat> so today, before we dive too far in, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Yes. Where it says here, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. And we're just going to stop there. We're going to examine some of the stuff from this first verse to get some background, to figure out what, what's happening here, who is this guy. We're going, to, we're going to think about the who, the where, and the when to set up this book of Nehemiah. So we'll start with who. Good place to start. His name is you know, right at the title. So we've got a pretty good clue that these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, as we think about who Nehemiah is, there, there's a few things I want to look at. One is I want to start with names. And I want to be careful with this because I don't want to, to dive so far into names that we're looking for for secret messages or things like that. I don't want to make too much of a name, but a name is very important, especially in the Hebrew culture. 
And, and so there is some that we can look at in the names of, of both Nehemiah and of his father, Hakaliah. In fact, anytime you see this, this Yah at the end of a name, a Hebrew name, that's very often going to be pointing to Yahweh, the Lord. It's a name that has something to do with the Lord. And Nehemiah's name means the Lord has comforted. So we're looking at something having to do with, with comfort. Not comfort as in uh, living in the lap of luxury and, and having everything. Although there might have been some of that. But that's not what the name is referring to. When we look at the Lord has comforted, this is more comforted from a sorrow. Comforted from some sort of loss. And the Lord is comforted. And Nehemiah's name already starts out talking about how the Lord has comforted. His father's name is one Hakaliah. Looking at the Hebrew words there, this might mean wait upon the Lord. To wait upon the Lord. Now we'll get into the when uh, later on, but, but let's just start by saying that, that Israel is in exile at this point. They have been for quite a while. In fact, probably both of these men were born in exile in a foreign land. And so it, it, we look at generations who are waiting for the Lord, who are looking to be comforted by the Lord. Nehemiah has a job. At the end of the first chapter, we, we see almost, it seems like a throwaway line almost. He says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah, who is in, in exile, is cupbearer to the king. Now, what does this mean? Well, we can analyze words, right? And see that that would mean he is one who bears the cup of the king. That bit is pretty obvious. But the cupbearer to the king, I've, I've always looked at that as, as like this, this you know, poor, dejected servant who, who brings the king his, his stuff and he has to taste everything to make sure nothing is, is poisoned so the king isn't going to get offed, right? But in actuality, the, that idea of, of a sniveling, dejected little thing is probably not at all what's going on here. If this guy is cupbearer to the king, that means he is alongside the king pretty much every day. He is a trusted confidant of the king. He is one of the closest people to the king. He is the one who does bring his food, bring his drink, make sure that nothing's poisoned. But this is somebody that, that is not kicked around and dejected. You don't do that to somebody who's watching your food so you don't die. This is somebody who is close to the king, who has the ear of the king who is trusted by the king. Nehemiah, in, in this foreign land, ha, has been ladder climbing, it seems. I mean, this guy is, is in a prime location where he is with the king. He probably is a man of means, given his proximity to the king. He probably is used to some bit of comfort. 
I mean, this, this is no rags to riches kind of story here where poor little Nehemiah gets called and then exalted to something great. Nehemiah was in a good spot. He was with the king. He was well taken care of. I imagine that, that the king probably sometimes asked for advice and Nehemiah could give it. That this was a guy who, who had... A, a bit of a social prowess, maybe, as well as, as a high aptitude. This guy could get things done. Nehemiah was some sort of up-and-comer. And so when we find him, when we see that he is cupbearer to the king, we see that, that this is a man who understands some things. He understands power. He understands trust. He understands what it takes to get different things done. And interestingly enough, we see God having orchestrated his life. A life where he is in exile, where he has been taken away from his homeland, living in a foreign land, and God has been using him and positioning him and equipping him and designing him and wiring him just so that he has the skills that are needed to gain the trust of people in the court putting him in the right places where he is advanced to the point that he is next to the king. God has been at work in Nehemiah's life before we ever know Nehemiah's name. To the point that when we get the start of this book, we see that he is cupbearer to the king. So the king, the king where? Let's, let's think about that for a little bit. He says that he is in Susa, the citadel. The citadel would also be the capital, the, that chief place, that, that prime location of what? Susa. Okay. Do we know where Susa is? It's okay if we don't. We're going to figure it out. Susa is actually the heart of the Persian Empire. Persia at this time is, is a world power. And Susa is the capital. Like I said, Nehemiah is in a really prime spot. He is in a place that he could just live out his days in, in some pretty incredible comfort. That's the kind of comfort that we're talking about where he's just living in the lap of luxury. But that's not what Nehemiah is going to do. Though he is in Susa, he's in the capital of, of the Persian Empire. A place of great wealth and great power. And God's going to call him to do something else. See, he's in the heart of the Persian Empire. A thousand miles from home, I say. And home is in quotation marks there, right? Because here's Nehemiah, a thousand miles away from home. But guess what? Nehemiah has probably never been home. Remember I said he was probably born, his father was probably born in exile. The only home they've ever known is, is in the land of these people who have conquered them. And yet here, over in what would be modern day Iraq, Iran area, the Persian Empire, Susa, 
He's a thousand mile trip from home in Jerusalem. Yet we're going to see that even as he is so far away and has probably never been there, and if he has been, it would have been a, a travel and then back. God is still drawing him. God is still using him. God has still set his heart in a place other than where he is. That's going to become important. So as it starts, we see Nehemiah, a well-to-do man who, who understands what it takes to get things done, a man that God has been working in his life, preparing him for something bigger than he ever knew. And realize he's the cupbearer to the king. He is in a high social status, and yet God is doing something greater than what he ever thought of. He is a thousand miles away from God's people in Jerusalem, and yet God is going to do something big there too. So that's the who and that's the where. The when for all this. That'll take us a little bit more time to to set the stage for what's happened here. Remember Nehemiah chapter 1 says that these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, that it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. 20th year of what? I'm glad you asked. The 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes I. King in Persia. So if we're putting this on a timeline, that drops it somewhere around 445 B.C. Some 400 years and change before Jesus comes on the scene. And that helps us a little bit to to know we have Jesus and then Nehemiah is back here. But what we really need to do to figure out what's going on with Nehemiah here is to jump back even further and work our way back up to him. So this is your previously on the history of Israel, I guess. As we take Nehemiah where he is in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes and we rewind the clock back another 500 years or so. We get back that far. Now we're in the time of Israel where the kings of Israel are in power. Remember their first king was Saul and there was King David that became the standard by which every other king was, was named. This time here we're looking about the time of Solomon's reign. Now Solomon, this guy was going crazy. If the kingdom was expanding under David, under Solomon, it was just exploding. This was, this was like high time for Israel, where, where the kingdom is expanding in all directions. People are coming to Solomon to, to look at this man's wisdom. There is so much wealth in Israel. And Solomon has had the privilege of building the temple for the Lord. This was something that was on David's heart to do. But God said, you've got blood on your hands. You don't get to build the temple for me. Your son is going to do it. And so David had had worked on preparations and had prepared things and and set things up. But when Saul took the throne, that's when the temple was able to be built. And remember, I said this was a time of incredible wealth in Israel. So Solomon builds this temple, an enormous temple for the worship of the one true God. And as he does, the whole thing is covered in gold. 
the inside is just full of all this gold. I, I can't imagine what it was like as, as the priests went in and lit the, the candles and prepared for worship and everything just bounced off the gold ceiling and floor and the walls and the pillars and everything in there. Every little etching, every bowl that was made, every angel that was carved, all covered in gold. It, it, was, it was a sight to behold. In fact, people, rulers came from other nations to see this kind of thing. But more than just being beautiful. More than being a place of extravagance. The extravagance was meant to point to the one that they worshipped. That he is worthy of all of this. And so the temple is also that place. Was foremost that place that the nation could gather. They could come together on their day of atonement. They could bring their sacrifices. The priests would take them. They would slaughter the sacrifices. They would perform the rituals. And they would ensure the people that your sins have been atoned for. That God hears you and he knows you and, and your sin is covered. They would gather together in, in worship at the temple. They would wash themselves. They would present their sacrifices and they would know, they would remember that I'm made clean by God. He remembers me. He knows me. My sins are taken care of. The temple was the heart of Israel. This was the place that, that all of Israel looked to say there is the temple of our God. The one who has brought us out of Egypt, who has brought us out of slavery, the one who has defended us and protected us and brought us together. There is the temple of our God. And we know that he hears. We know that he reigns. Through their worship in the temple, through their reading of the law, through their, their following of different things, God was calling his people to live like they are his people. That, that's a thing that kind of gets overlooked, doesn't it? In, in, all the, in all the ceremony and all the things and all the pointing to the temple and saying, that is the temple of our God. He is the one who protects us. He is the one who guides us. He is the one who is taking care of our sins. God is calling his people to live like his people. That the way they treat one another is in accord to the way that he is, is treating them. That the things that they do matter. And God has warned his people again and again, what's going to happen if they refuse to live like that? I mean, we can go all the way back to Deuteronomy here. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, before, uh, after the people have come out of slavery in Egypt and they've wandered around the desert and, and they're just getting ready to go into the promised land. At the end of Deuteronomy, they, they line up people on, on two different mountains and they stand in between them and they call blessings and curses. Blessings for those who will keep the covenant. Blessings for those who will do as God has called them to do. And then curses for those who will not keep the covenant. Curses for those who will ignore God, will rebel against God, will forget God. And if you read through them, 
there's, there's blessings about that far and then curses like that. It's almost like God knew that we were going to forget. Go figure. And amidst all these curses, different things that are going to happen, one of the things that God says a couple of times is the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, among the nations. You will be scattered. You will not be together as one anymore. In that covenant ceremony, God said, live like my people, act like my people. If you are mine, live like me. And if you don't, it will not go well. But the people forgot. They ignored. They rebelled. When we enter into the time of the kings with Saul and David and Solomon, and the, and the kingdom split, and we see all these different kings, some of them good kings that, that lead the people in, in worshiping God as they're supposed to, and living in a way that reflects God's glory, and then many others who are just after their own selfish pride and power and lead the people into all sorts of idolatry, and we just see this forgetting of who God is. To where even during that time, Jeremiah says to the people, for 23 years, I've been telling you, spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened, he said. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, because you've not obeyed my words, judgment is coming, discipline is coming. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, look at that. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Does that blow your mind at all? I mean, this, this is a pagan king who cares nothing about God. And Jeremiah is telling the people, I've been telling you for 23 years, I've been, I've been telling you about this and you just ignore me. And so Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord's servant, is coming. God takes even the pagan kings and he can use them for his glory. And so, as Jeremiah has been warning the people for 10, 20, almost 30 years, and they've just not been listening, Nebuchadnezzar does come. In 605 BC, he takes a bunch of people away. In 597, he comes back around and takes a bunch more. In 586 BC, he finally comes, lays siege to Jerusalem, shuts everything down, destroys the walls, burns the temple. The city is destroyed. Jerusalem is laid to waste. And Nebuchadnezzar takes people back. Anybody who is left in Jerusalem is left in rubble. People are gone. They are pulled out of the land. Scattered throughout the Persian Empire. Actually, at that time, it would be the Babylonian Empire. Scattered around the Babylonian Empire. And there is not a one of them that can point back and say, Look, there is the temple of our God. 
there's the place that we know that our God reigns, that our sins are taken care of, that we are protected. The temple is destroyed. The walls are laid to waste. Jerusalem is, is just a pile of rubble. And the people have got to be wondering, well, what happened? Did, did God fail us? Is Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, stronger than God? Lesson we've got to take from this, we've got to take from this, is that God takes sin seriously. But we don't believe that. You know why? God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from this one tree, and if you do, on that day you will surely die. And they took from that tree and they ate, and they did not drop dead on that day. But on that day, at that moment, everything changed. And death began to reign. But it was delayed a little bit. The people were getting ready to go into the land and, and they're presenting these blessings and curses and said that if you, if you don't live in this way, if you ignore my covenant with you, then you'll be scattered. And they went in and they lived however they wanted to and God didn't scatter them right away. He was gracious. And God tells us, don't, don't chase after these things. They're empty and they're going to destroy your life. And we try it, and instead of seeing our life crumble in that moment, we go, actually, that was kind of fun. God is gracious, and he has prolonged some of that, and we sometimes take that to mean he doesn't really mean what he says. Can we get it through our heads that God takes sin seriously? Because as we look at Jerusalem lying in, in ashes, that's the message we see. But along with that is a second message that God is still abounding in grace. You see, Jeremiah had told him, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. He's going to take you away. He's going to destroy everything. You're going to be scattered. But in that same thing, he also said, and it'll be 70 years and then you'll be allowed to return. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar took the first exiles away from Jerusalem. Jeremiah said 70 years. Come forward about 66 years. And Persia destroys Babylon, takes over world power. The king of Persia says, you know what? All these exiles, we're going to let them go back to their homes. We're going to let them go and rebuild their temples. They'll still serve us, but they can do it from their own home. And God used the hearts of pagan kings to again do what he has always said he was going to do. Praise God that he can use any means. And so that's where we sit, with, with having the nation being taken in exile, being judged because of their sin, being judged because they ignored, forgot, rebelled against God. They've been taken away. But then, God releases him to go home. And 
And so some of them go home and they start building the temple. Another wave comes much later. It's going to be like 100 years still to get from 539 down to 445 before Nehemiah finally goes. In all that time, we see God judging sin. But we also see God never losing his people. These people who are taken off into exile, who are in a foreign land under a foreign power, they never left God's sight. God taking the the greatest leaders of their day, the, the strongest leaders, and using them as his tools to do what he wants to be done. God working in Nehemiah's life to prepare him for something he never knew was coming. So that when it was time, he was in the right place. I think as we walk through this, as we consider what it is to have that that God-inspired vision, there can be a lot of these same questions. You see, Nehemiah had a lot of stuff ahead of him as he jumped into this. And a lot of uncertainty. And a lot of opposition. And a lot of challenge. And the questions are still there when you're chasing down that vision that God has put in front of you. Is this really from God? Is this really how this is supposed to go? Is this really worth it? Because... There's a lot of pain and suffering that comes with this. When God calls you to go, what do you say? Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your goodness and mercy. I thank you, Lord, for your holiness, your perfection. God, we know we can say that sin is a big deal to you, but too often our lives show that we don't really believe that. Lord, help us to follow you, to know that your vision is the greatest, to know that when you call us to say yes to things, That even though we're going to face hardship, those things are worth it. When you call us to say no to things, even though they look delightful, you have our best in mind. God, help us. Strengthen us. Push us to when you say go, we go. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers, will you come forward, please, to serve communion?